Well, church, before I turn to our text this morning, let me make a few comments about the week that we've been through as a nation in light of what happened in Las Vegas. It's been very interesting, the aftermath of this horrific tragedy, to use the word evil mentioned frequently. Um, One editorialist just had a headline that said, pure evil. And as I've, I've thought about that, for there to be evil, there must be a definitive standard of good. I believe the standard of good comes from the heart and mind of the unchanging triune God. In fact, uh, 1 John says this, chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Um, So as we think about this concept of, of evil, and we realize the fallenness of man, there's a book entitled The People of the Lie, which is a wonderful, monumental book. I say wonderful, it's enlightening, by a man named Scott Peck, a psychiatrist, who came to faith in Christ and wrote about human evil. And the thesis of his book is that evil comes in many forms and variations. Sometimes, as we have observed, evil comes when people put bombs on their body and blow up innocent people in holy jihad, or they commandeer a semi-truck and run over people in the streets of France. So sometimes evil comes when a multimillionaire, as in last Sunday night, who was a, had a background as a CPA and didn't have any police record whatsoever that I'm aware of, uh, guns down people, in some horrendous fashion. So, so Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of my favorite writers, says that when you understand human sinfulness and evil, that evil and sinfulness do not go from nation to nation or even group to group, but through every human heart. So in the aftermath of Las Vegas, um, evil is a category because there is evil. And evil is a category because correspondingly there is a category of that which is, is good. So in the area of, of evil, this is what Colossians says, we studied a few months ago, this is, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. So there is a kingdom of darkness and there's a kingdom of light. There's a kingdom of evil and there's a kingdom of good. Um, C.S. Lewis writes this, he he writes in Mere Christianity, and to me it's so clear. He he talks about at one time being an atheist before he came to faith in Christ at the age of 31, 32. And this is what Lewis says, the Oxford professor. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just or unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. And in other words, that the, the, the argument of that there is evil or justice is an argument that there is a God who has planted those ideas in your mind. And then he says, consequently, atheism turns out to be just way too simple. 
If the whole universe had no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there was no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know what it was to have darkness. Darkness would have a word without meaning as just or unjust or love or, or, or beauty. So we, we, we understand these things. Therefore, in light of these things, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, um, for example, we need to understand that um, that we're to be people who pursue justice and truth. Let me read you something. I meant to bring it with me, but I've got to pull it up. This is the Baptist Faith Message, our, our defining document. This is Article uh, 15. I'll just read the first two, par- first two sentences. All Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of God Christ, supreme in our lives and in human society. Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving work of God in Christ Jesus. In the spirit of Christ, we must oppose racism Every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography, so forth and so on. But but the the, the statement is very clear that we must be people who advocate for justice and right living. But as we go, and that's part of the sermon this morning, as we go, we preach Jesus. We preach Christ. Christ. We preach the glories of sin forgiven only by the shed blood of Jesus. In the present context, we're living in a situation where something is happening that's horrific in the land of, of Burma. It's a picture of Burma. Burma has a very small border area with the country of Bangladesh. Burma is Buddhist. Bangladesh is Muslim. There's a group of people called the Rohingya people who in the present context these are some pictures of some, some, some of their children. They are being forcefully run out of Burma, and they're fleeing to Bangladesh. 400,000 people. It's a genocide in our day and age. And my heart has been broken over it, these, these dear Rohingya people. And they're, they're going from a country of poverty to a country of extreme poverty. There's no safety net in Bangladesh to take care of 400,000 people. And, and so every report I read from the UN Council say that, 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 that the camps are horrific and the hygiene is getting worse with every passing hour, as you can imagine. So, so, so I, some of us just prayed for the Rohingya people. And, and that as we take aid to the Rohingya people in the name of Jesus, that we could preach the gospel of Jesus. Because you see, if we have a great system of hygiene and we have some housing for them and we have schools, which we should work for, for them, and we do not tell them about the one who gives them hope and eternity, then we have not fulfilled our calling. Because an educated, 
inoculized, hygienic, progressive person without Jesus goes to hell. And that's why we say that, that permanent help comes only as people are grounded in the regeneration of Christ. So, so we work and we grieve and we labor, but there are standards that are playing in our mind, but the ultimate standard is Christ. I want you to see that. So I want to say that. The second thing I want to say is that, is that we should never um, forget what we can do by just speaking truth. I read this a few weeks ago and just think about been thinking about it. This man was president of the United States in the 1880s. His name was Chester A. Arthur. Very quick story that just thrills me. Chester A. Arthur was born in Vermont, moved to New York, got involved in the tweed machine of political corruption in New York City, uh, lived off of uh, graft and corruption. Really, he was in charge of the Port of New York. He made $50,000 a year uh, in the 1970s, which would be like making $2 million or more a year now. Um, he was um, involved with a guy named Roscoe Conkling, who was dirty to the core of his soul. He's a senator from New York. Uh, Chester A. Arthur in the campaign, I think, of 1884. Uh, there was a man named James Garfield who ran for president as a Republican. And Garfield was a decorated war veteran, a reformer. And in order to win the Republican votes, they, they looked at New York and said, who do you want? And they said, Chester A. Arthur. And Chester A. Arthur, they said, well, he's, he's, he's a man of graft and corruption, but we've got to win this election. So it was Garfield and Chester A. Arthur. As you know from American history, just a few months after he became president, James A. Garfield was shot. And over two months, he fought for his life, and then he died. And Chester A. Arthur became president. And what's interesting, though, is, is Chester A. Arthur, who everyone thought was going to be corrupt and a man of ill repute, turned out to be a man of incredible integrity. And this has come out since 1958, but, but we know now that there was a, there was a, a semi-invalid woman who couldn't get out of the bed because of her inability to walk in a severe back pain named Julia Sand. And Julius Sand just wrote the president a letter, the president-to-be. And he read it, and it kind of grabbed his spirit, and he started correspondence with her. And when, 100 years almost after he died, his son sold these letters to the Library of Congress, and we now have them. But Julius Sand had this correspondence with the president of the United States where she challenged him to be a man of integrity. Let me just read part of the first letter. I mean, she... She, she doesn't hold back. I mean, it wasn't, dear Mr. President, to be, hope you have a good day. Listen, the hours of President Garfield's life are numbered. Before this meets your eye, the, the mail system, see, it, it takes several days in those days to get a letter across. Before this meets your eyes, you may be President of the United States. The people are bowed in grief, but do you realize it? Not so much because Garfield is dying, but because you are to be president. <laughs> okay. I'm amazed you read the rest of the letter. He says, what president ever entered office under such circumstances so said? Your kindest opponents say, well, Chester Arthur will try to do right, but then add gloomily, he won't succeed, though making a man president cannot change him, close quote. But making a man president can change him. 
Great emergencies awaken generous traits which have lain dormant half a life. If there is a spark of true nobility in you, now is the occasion to let it shine. Faith in your better nature forces me to write you, but not to beg you to resign. Do what is more difficult and brave. Be a man of integrity. It is not proof of highest goodness that never to have done wrong, but it is proof of it sometimes in one's career to pause and ponder and to recognize the evil and to turn resolutely away from it. Only once in a while there comes a crisis which renders miracles feasible. The great tidal wave of sorrow which has rolled over the country has swept you loose from your old moorings and set you on a mountaintop alone. Mr. President, to be disappoint our fears. Force the nation have faith in you. Show from the first that you have none but the purest of aims. You cannot slink back into obscurity if you would. A hundred years hence, schoolboys will recite your name in the list of presidents and tell of your administration. And what shall posterity say? It is for you to choose. And that, they, this correspondence went on. And Arthur surprised everybody, and he was a man of integrity. In fact, when he died, one of his detractors, a columnist named Alexander McClure, said, no man ever entered the presidency so profoundly and widely distrusted as Chester A. Arthur, and no one ever retreated or retired more generally respected alike by political friend and foe. And I, I thought about this, and I thought, here's, here's a woman who, who just spoke truth. So, so, God takes the little that we do, and he uses it. So, that's what I want to say. Let's go to Colossians this morning. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. And this is the scripture we'll be studying. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels and going into detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through his joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. And so so in, in this letter, the Apostle Paul is, is writing and he's instructing this church and he's talking about uh, how to live the Christian life. And he says here in, in verse, this verse, it says, therefore, verse 15, therefore let no one pass, 16, let, let no one pass judgment on you. Don't let anybody criticize you. So, so what does the therefore refer to? It refers to what we discussed last week. He says, because you are in Christ and you've received from him, because you've been baptized in him, because you've been raised in him, because in him is, all, is the head of all rule and authority, because in him you who were formerly were dead are now made alive, because in him the legal demands have been met, because in him the rulers and authorities have been put to open shame and triumphed over them by the cross of Christ. Therefore, because of who you are in him, let no one criticize you. Let no one browbeat you. Let, let no one put you down on the basis of days and diets and Sabbaths. 
Let, let no one go into great detail about, about what you must do because if you're in Christ, you're complete in Christ. Now, now Paul is dealing with this issue that, that well-meaning people in, in this particular situation, all these tributaries made up what we call the Colossian heresy and, and involved one group we're going to look at this morning, the, the keeping of extra biblical rules or extra spiritual rules. The other is the, the, the going into great detail about a hyper-spirituality. So there are various groups made up the Colossian heresy. This particular group said, you know, it's, it's really fine to believe in Jesus. It's wonderful to believe in Christ. It's, it's, but to really be the person you need to be, you've got to observe certain diets and observe certain days and certain new moon festivals and certain traditions that, that you've got to do. And to me, I hear the Apostle Paul thinking out loud. You know, he says, here we go again. All of his ministry, all of his apostolic ministry, Paul had to combat what we call the Judaizers of one degree or another. He's, some, some of the Judaizers that were the most uh, destructive we find in Acts chapter 15 where they had this great Jerusalem council and it says this in verse 1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And it says Paul and Barnabas went into great detail about what God had done among the Gentiles, as did the apostle Peter. And they had this great council 12 years before the book of Colossians and, and they, they, they came out unified as one man and this is what the apostle Peter said, he said, and now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our forefathers nor we were able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. He says, you know, it's not the keeping of the law, it's believing in Jesus. And so the whole council came out as one man, they said, that's what we're going to teach, that's what we're going to teach, and that's what they taught. But Paul says, once again, here we go again. He's dealing with people that said, it's fine to believe in Jesus, but you've got to do X, Y, and Z. Therefore, if we're to be people who fight against these errors in our own day, we must be people of the book. We must be people of the word. We must be people who understand the glories of Christ. And this is a little quote from John Calvin. John Calvin, one of the reformers, he's on the bulletin cover today, was born in 1509, he died in 1564 at the age of 54. Calvin was uh, from France, he was trained to be an attorney, uh, but as he studied, he, was, he had a sudden surprising conversion, came to faith in Christ, became a theologian, lived most of his time in Geneva, married for nine years. He and his wife, Idolette, had a baby that died as a little boy. Um, he raised his two daughters from her previous marriage, John Calvin, a wonderful man, a great man. But he said this. He says, when it, comes to, when it comes to pastors or teachers, let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pasture the sheep and kill the wolves and instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose thunder and lightning if necessary, but let them do it according to the word of God. So, so, to, so, so to combat these things, church, we've got to be people of the book. And that's why later in Colossians 3, the apostle Paul says, 
Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to the Lord. But let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so when, when Paul looks at this, he gives this incredible illustration. He says, he says, these Old Testament regulations were signifying foreshadowing the coming of Christ. Christ has fulfilled the sacrificial system. Christ has fulfilled the law. It's all about Christ. And then he says, he says this, they are a shadow of the substance that was coming. They're just a shadow. So, so he says, these people are embracing the shadow and they're not dealing with the substance. It's as if we had a, a, a parent or a sibling or a spouse or a friend who had gone into World War II and we knew from the Red Cross that they had been taken as prisoners of war and they were prisoners of war, let's say, for two or three years and we were zealous to see them. We prayed daily for their health and we got word when the war was over that they were coming home. And so you're preparing everything. You think they may be coming on this particular day. And the house is festive. And, and the sun is high and is shining through the door frame. And, and all of a sudden the door is thrown open. And there stands your brother or your friend or your spouse or your parent. And there's a long shadow being cast because the sun is, on his, is at his back. And you run up and you fall down and you start embracing the shadow. And you say, it's so good to see you. And it's, it's, Paul is presenting a, a picture of utter silliness. He says, you don't embrace the shadow, there's the substance. You don't embrace feast days and fast days and certain diets. You, there's the substance, there's Christ. You run to Christ. And so you say, he's here. He's here. Behold, Messiah, Jesus is here. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world is here. And he says, don't let anybody criticize you for these things. Now, there, there is, to me, as I thought about this, I may be wrong, there's a first order of teaching in this area that is heretical. And the heresy is, is this, you must be circumcised to be saved. It's works. It's Galatians. It's Acts 15. It's just heresy. It's faith. There's a second order that says something like this. For you to have a heightened spirituality, you must eat certain foods and observe feast days and go through certain regimens. That's not heresy. It's just doctrinal deviation. But as, as I thought about this, the, the, the problem is that the doctrinal deviation can eclipse the gospel and the person of Christ before you know it. Listen, preach and love the gospel of Jesus. Preach and love. That's what we're about. The true transformation and this permanent comes when people know Christ. I, so if, if, you, if you read historical journals today, there is, um, people will write about some of my heroes, and I'm, I'm sometimes amused and sometimes kind of angered. So I'll, I'll read articles about a man named William Carey. Now, William Carey, I mentioned him several times. He, he was the father of modern-day missions. He went to uh, the, the most difficult part of India as a missionary in 1793, and he stayed there until he died in 1834. 
He was there for 41 years, never left. Buried wives and children, and, and the Lord used him. So if you read about William Carey today, among a lot of historians, they will celebrate William Carey, the, the man who advocated for universal education for men and women in India. William Carey, who stood against the British East India Company and said, I will upset the traditions of these people when he stood up and he said, we will no longer tolerate two things. Number one is little girls being left on a hillside to be eaten by animals or raised as prostitutes because they're not boys. He stood against that. And number, number two, we will not stand anymore for the young widows of old men to throw themselves on the burning corpse of their husband when their husband dies, which was a Hindu tradition. It was called Suti. He said that's a, a, a horrific, terrible thing. And, and he, he prodded the, the British government to outlaw those and to upset cultural norms. And, and they'll say, we, we celebrate William Carey, the educator. We celebrate William Carey, the defender of women. We celebrate William Carey, the one who believed in the equality of men and women without ever mentioning why William Carey was there. And William Carey would say, you know, all of those things are the outworking of my faith in the work of Jesus on the cross who forgives sins. All of those things are the outworking. So, so I, I just say to us to be very careful. There's a wonderful book by a guy named D.A. Carson called The Cross and Christian Ministry. And this is what he says. And it's, it's, it's very telling. He says, a Mennonite leader, he's just quoting him, a Mennonite leader, Mennonites, has told me that one generation sees the gospel as central with social entailments flowing out of the gospel. The next generation says the gospel is there and social entailments and social issues, social justice are very important. And the third generation says the gospel is assumed, but we really are about social concerns. And you lose the gospel. The gospel can be eclipsed by well-meaning people who say, well, let's add this and let's add that and, and let's rejoice in potentially the shadow and not the substance. Application. This is my application. In 1979, uh, my wife-to-be and I went to the premiere showing of a seminar led by a man named Francis Schaeffer, another man named C. Everett Koop, who had become Surgeon General under President Reagan, entitled, Whatever Happened to the Human Race? It was almost six years after Roe v. Wade, and it was the galvanizing event, just a series of seminars around our country that help, helped mobilize the church, the evangelical church, into a force that stood for the sanctity of human life. And so from 1979 until today, I have believed in and supported and prayed for life in the womb. I think it's the ethical issue of our day, personal opinion. Um, and it has had political entailments. Um, in, in the last general election, we, we had basically two parties to vote for. Uh, one party um, had, had a, a standard bearer that was proclaimed um, an incredible person of, of nobility, and this award, award was given by Planned Parenthood, which is a government agency that basically does abortions. Uh, to me, receiving an award from Planned Parenthood 
would be the nadir, the bottom reality of my experience. It was horrible. The other party said they would defund Planned Parenthood. So, so I'm, I'm not a political animal necessarily, but it has caused me to have to think soberly about for whom I vote. I vote consistently for the party that espouses life, example. Now, as I say that, here's what I ask myself. Do, do I spend as much time fretting or weeping over people going to hell as I spend lamenting babies being horribly taken from the womb? And as I ask myself that question, and I won't tell you the answer, but as I ask myself that question, I have to say to myself, do not forget your ultimate calling is to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these things are the outflow of following Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. You see, you can believe, you can believe in, in very, very good things that eclipse the gospel. That's what's happening. I mean, good things. I mean, we, we have more good ministries here than I can even begin to count. And, and even a good ministry can eclipse the reality and the glory and the wonder of the cross of Jesus. So that's my word of application. The, the second group, very quickly, the second group is a group, um, Paul says this, he says, don't let anybody disqualify you. Don't let anybody disqualify you, which means to, st- to steal your joy, to to. to to negate your happiness. Don't let anyone disqualify you. The only time this word is used in the New Testament by, by insisting on four things. Number one is asceticism. Number two is the worship of angels. Number three, they, they have uh, visions that, that, that pump up their sensual mind. And fourthly, uh, they have this, this type of, 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 of arrogance. It says the end result, when you combine one, two, three, and four, you're not holding fast to the head who is Jesus, who joyfully and graciously supplies us with everything we need in our joints and our ligaments. And because of him, the body grows as he wants it to grow. And so the, the word here is, is, is don't let anybody disqualify you or rob you of your joy or of your usefulness by number one, asceticism, which is a word that means self-mortification in the extreme. See, the Bible talks about doing hard things. The Bible, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Or, or if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Speaking metaphorically, of course, but he said, you deal with sin. You do. You're, you're disciplined. You're a soldier. You're an athlete. You're a farmer. In 2 Timothy 2, he, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, I beat my body. I make it my slave. Paul says, I'm not going to let this stuff get the better of me. So there's every reason to say, you know, I'm going to go strong. But these people went beyond that, beyond the point of gospel teaching, but beyond the teaching of Jesus. They said, we've got to go beyond this to really be accepted. So so they they brag about what they've done. Paul says, don't do that. And secondly, he says that they worship angels. As I've studied this, I I believe these people have bought into a, a, a statement that believe that we can't go directly into the presence of God, so we have to have intermediaries between us and God, and the intermediary are, are angels. So angels usher us in the presence of God. There's only one mediator. His name is Jesus. Sister, so they, they have visions that are not tethered to Scripture. 
As one writer says, it's a treadmill, and the, the seeking of these experiences can never be satisfied, and the experience becomes the life lessons and the authority behind everything they do in the spiritual life. So that their aesthetic, or asceticism, that their, their worship of angels, they have visions, and he says they're, they're just puffed up. They're arrogant. They're arrogant. They're, they're puffed up without reason by their thinking, by their sensuous mind. You know, if you're being operated on by the Holy Spirit, if you're being operated on by the Holy Spirit, it will produce a teachable humility in your life. In the name of Jesus. So these people bragged about what they did and didn't do. They bragged about the fact they had an angel intermediary guide. See, every time it just discounts Jesus. They bragged about the fact that they had visions, and saw things. They were over and above beyond the apostolic teaching. They, they bragged about these things and they just puffed them up time after time. But Paul says, when they do this, they're not holding fast to the head. It's a great verse. Verse 19, they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Not holding fast to the head. Now my question is, are we holding fast to the head? Are we holding fast to Christ? Are we holding fast to the one who is almighty God? You see, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lamb of God of Yom Kippur. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He is our year of jubilee. He is our prophet because he's spoken the final word from God. He is our priest because by his one sacrifice on the cross, he's forever fulfilled the sacrificial and priestly functions. He is our king because he reigns as almighty God. He is the scapegoat from the book of Leviticus where you place the sins upon the head of a scapegoat and you sent him into the wilderness because he's carried our sins away from us. Behold the greatness of Christ. Hold fast. So how do you get refreshment and joy and hope and purpose? Answer, you hold fast to the greatness of Jesus. John chapter 7, Jesus said this. said, on the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. By this he spoke of the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Hold fast to Christ. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon on the refreshment of Christ. Just let me read a paragraph. Edwards, who died in 1758, says, It is said that Christ is a river of water. Because there is such a fullness in him, so plentiful a provision for the satisfaction of the needy and longing soul. When one is extremely thirsty, though it is not a small draught of water will satisfy him, yet when he comes to a river, he finds a fullness and he can drink all that he wants. Christ is a river continually flowing. 
There are fresh samples of water coming from the fountainhead continually so that a man may live by it and be supplied with water all of his life. So Christ is an ever-flowing fountain. He is continually supplying his people, and the fountain is never spent. They who live upon Christ may have fresh supplies from him and all eternity. They may have an increase of blessedness that is new and new still and which will never, ever, 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 ever come to an end. Listen, run to the fountain, the inexhaustible fountain. His name is Christ. Don't let anyone rob you of your joy, rob you of your hope, rob you of your usefulness and your peace by saying, oh, it's fine to believe in Christ. But you've got to do this and do that that's above Scripture. And you've got to have an angel guide to get you in the presence of God. And, and, and you've got to have these visions and you've got to do this that's beyond Scripture. And really it will lead to a puffed up, unteachable, self-centered mind. You, you, that's what you, that's what, no, huh? We need Christ. We need the glory of Christ in our homes, in our lives, in this church. Heed the words of the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, the way the apostle dealt with the Colossian heresy and its many tentacles. Um, that, thank you that even as he said, here we go again, he was rejoicing in the supremacy of Christ that has fulfilled every Old Testament regulation. Thank you that as he looked at the uh, people who were talking about a hyper-spirituality that involved uh, denying yourself beyond the biblical norm or the worship of angels or visions, that, that he just said, no, no, we need to hold to the head. Thank you for the simplicity and the glory of, of knowing Jesus. And I pray you would shine deeply in our lives deeply in our experiences, and we plead, we plead that Christ would be rich in us. And Lord, we plead as we go forward that we would preach and teach and pray the gospel to people around us, that we would be heartbroken over the men and women around us who have no concern for eternity, who are steadfastly walking into eternity with no hope of sins forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus. So may that gospel go out, whether it's in our subdivisions or our dormitories or in unreached people groups or among the Rohingya people of Burma as they're being forced in their homes. May the gospel go out. Um, and, and may we see the beauty of Jesus, I pray. Oh God, show us the glory of Christ. By the power you bring, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.